Hi, I'm James Gardner, host of Your History, Your Story, a podcast for everybody who loves stories about interesting people and events told by those who uncovered them from within their own family trees. This, we hope, will inspire you to discover and celebrate your history and your story. Our guest today is Monica Navarro Leonard, who is a professional photographer and independent contractor from Baltimore, Maryland. As a teenager growing up in New Jersey, Monica was actively engaged in various activities at her church and was very outgoing. However, she also struggled with anxiety and depression and felt the need to please others. Monica didn't want to be just another kid wrapped up in typical teenage concerns. Instead, she felt the need to channel her anxious energy into something productive and become part of something bigger than herself and make a difference for good in this world. And Monica is here today to tell her story. I'd now like to welcome Monica Navarro-Leonard to our show. Welcome, Monica. Hi, James. Thank you so much for having me. I feel honored. Well, we're glad to have you. I want to start off by asking, Monica, where were you born and where were you raised? I am a Jersey girl through and through. I was born in Somerville at Somerset Medical Center and was raised in White House Station. So I grew up in Hunterdon County, which is little known to the rest of the nation, but there's like this whole farm portion of New Jersey that exists. So, you know, the whole rest of New Jersey uh, stereotypes, I didn't really know about until I got much older. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I didn't know that we were supposed to speak funny or, um, you know, the whole what exit do you live off of? I was like, exit of what? I don't know what you're talking about. So yeah, I, I lived in New Jersey all my life. Well, all my life until I grew up. Yeah. So what can you tell us, Monica, a little bit about your early memories, your family, maybe some relatives that uh, you may have spent time with. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I was lucky enough to grow up with my mom's whole side of the family lived in New Jersey. She had split her time. She was born in Texas, but then her father was from New Jersey. So they moved up when she was quite young and it's a big family. My mom is the oldest of six and my grandmother lived close by also in Hunterdon County where my mom was raised. And we spent Sundays at grandma's house, all of us and the cousins. I just remember it being a really fun time and it was something so kind of sure, you know, Sundays at grandma's house. I think if you talk to any one of my cousins, they would all talk to you about this whole huge crew of grandkids. She would do a big bowl of buttered macaroni and a big bowl of um, meat sauce macaroni that way. There would be no complaints or tears. Everybody had something to eat. <laughs> um, Goodness, and so we spent a lot of time there and with my cousins and aunts and uncles, which was fun. My dad's side of the family, my dad immigrated here from Lima, Peru in the early 70s. He's also one of six and his whole family live, lived in Lima. So the split side of that was that I got to travel every couple of years down to Lima, Peru and... I just remember going down to Lima and we didn't speak Spanish at all. So it was just these huge family gatherings with tons and tons of uncles, usually uncles and aunts that I'd never even met yet. Everyone was uncle and aunt. And, um, you know, my birthday is in February and we often went down in February. So I got to celebrate my birthday down there a bunch and, you know, they'd bring in, there'd be a hundred people and so much food and pinatas and dancing. And, and it was so crazy. And I didn't always understand what anyone was saying, but it was so much fun. And it's just become such a special thing for me. And, you know, now I get to share that with my kids as well. I understand you had some really good meals down there with the family. Oh, yes. A hundred percent. I got introduced to so many different 
different foods that I did not get introduced to in the United States, really. Um, if you've ever had ceviche, I don't know if you've ever had ceviche, which is oh, uh, Peru. Peru does its own version, but it's essentially seafood that's been marinated in, in lemon juices and spices and things, and it cooks in the lemon juice. So it's sushi grade seafood and they serve it to you as like a little salad, but the cilantro and the the lime, and it's actually a special little Peruvian lemon that looks more like a lime and this big Peruvian corn and things like that. And they mix it all together. And it's just like the most delicious salad you've ever had in your life. And certainly there were strange things. I have memories of my dad trying to trick us and feed us cow's tongue. Um, because there are so many just different things that they ate that we didn't eat in New Jersey but you know conversely growing up in our house even in New Jersey my mom cooked a lot of Peruvian food that I didn't know was Peruvian food I thought it was just that was just food you know those were the staples in our home that we ate um, arroz con pollo or you know things like that and I didn't realize until I got a little older that other people didn't eat that for you know Wednesday dinner and um, the first time I went to Lima, I was actually four weeks old. It was back in the 80s. You didn't need passports for babies back then. And my mom had just had me. I had two older siblings who were toddlers. So learning about this as I got older, I just remember thinking, oh, my gosh, my mom, you know, she's she's just incredible. I can't imagine doing what she did. My father had traveled ahead of her by a week or so. And so she traveled alone in 1980 with two toddlers and a four-week-old infant down to a country where she did not speak the language at all and i just find that remarkable even just one of the yeah (laughs) i mean i only have two so it's i can't imagine i have so many more resources than she had back then i have a greater grasp of the language i've used that many times in my own parenting as a benchmark of you know we can do amazing things yeah, I think that's great that they made the effort to bring you down to meet the other side of your family and be intentional about it. Yeah, it was really important to my dad and to and I mean family is just really important in general to both of my parents. So having that was really really special and uh, despite the fact that my grandparents lived so far away to to have a real relationship with them over the course of my childhood is really special. Yeah, I bet. So Monica, can you go on to tell us something about your teenage years and school and some of your interests and hobbies and what was life like for you as a teenager in New Jersey? Uh, I was, I was kind of an interesting teenager. I think I wanted to be pretty cool and sort of punk rock. Um, and I was, I was not, um, (laughs) (laughs) you didn't make the cut. I didn't make the cut. I mean, I lived my life as number three of five in a family that didn't have a lot of money, honestly. And we, I think I lived in hand-me-downs for so long. Um, I didn't often even get to really choose my clothes. So, you know, I sort of stumbled into my teenage years. Everyone does awkwardly, I suppose, but I, I can't help but feel like I was a little more awkward than most. Um, I really loved the arts from a really young age. And that carried definitely into my teenage years. I wanted to be a photographer. I wanted to be a writer. Um, I used to write a lot. And I would say most of my friends probably didn't get, they were just like, oh, that's great. Yeah, that's cool. (laughs) But, you know, I was super outgoing and super, um, it's weird to use the word popular. That doesn't really register. But I, I had a lot of friends and I loved being around them. And I was super involved with my youth group at my church. 
and um, loved being a part of that group and things. Those were all my closest friends, especially because I was homeschooled. I didn't have a school crowd to hang with at all. So it was really mostly the youth group. And then I danced ballet for a long time as well. All of the the young women that I danced with at the ballet studio, I was really close with, you know, at, at different points in time. And that was like a, that was my whole little dance world that really didn't ever mix with my, my church friends. But, you know, that was another outlet that I had for creativity and for humor. Um, I think I was kind of a, I always had stage fright and I was very nervous socially. So I made up for it with a sense of humor that was sometimes a hit a lot of times a miss, but you know, <laughs> at least I was lovable. <laughs> yeah. The lead balloon joke or something like that. Hey, yeah. There were a lot of those. There are a lot of those, but I mean, how do comics learn otherwise? That's how they learn. <laughs> you learn what sticks. Yeah. So you had a, you had a lot of church friends. You, had, you were heavily involved in the church. Your whole family was. Yeah. You know, early on, we were involved with girls and boys programs, the Assemblies of God church that I grew up in. They have a program called Missionettes and Royal Rangers, which is sort of a church version of, you know, Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts. So we were involved in that as kids. And then as we got older, youth group became our thing. And I do remember at some point in time, I think maybe when I was 16, and it felt so the church, the building, the people the history there, the memories. I've been going to that church since I was a baby. You know, it was the only church I'd ever really known. And it feeling so special and important to me in terms of just this part of my history. You know, this is so much of who I had become to that point was wrapped up in that building, right? And in those people. And I just, I just remember kind of being uh, really struck by that and noticing too that at that point in time, you know, there was a certain stretch of time where literally I was at church every day of the week, except for maybe Saturdays. Sundays, we were there twice for morning and evening service. Mondays was women's ministry. And I would go with my mom because that was an opportunity for all of us kids to hang out. And, you know, sometimes I would also volunteer with the women and learn how to crochet or that sort of thing. And uh, Tuesdays was choir practice and Wednesdays was Bible study and you know, youth group and Thursday for a time was revival services. And then Friday was youth group. And so I was there every day of the week. It was so central to, to my experience as an adolescent. So it wasn't like it was a mandatory, oh, I have to be at church. Oh, you, you actually were involved. You felt it was part of your life and not just a, a place you had to go to because you had to. Yeah. I mean, I can't say that there was never a time when, you know, certainly, oh, mom and dad, we have to go to church if we're living under this roof. And there were times when it felt, um, you know, you feel like you're missing out on something because someone's doing something else on a Sunday or we, you know, if we wanted to do sports, my parents hated that the games were always on Sundays. And so there were moments of that, but in general, no, it was never, it was just a given. And it was, um, that's where all our friends were, you know, that's, that's where we wanted to be. So. Right. At some point uh, you had gotten involved with an organization called the Institute in basic life principles. Uh, can you tell us how that came about? I believe it was about in 1988 or so. My parents were first introduced to 
this, this conference called the Basic Seminar. The Basic Seminar had been going on at that point for a decade or more, but it was the Institute in Basic Life Principles, but prior to that, it had also been called the Institute in Basic Youth Conflicts. <laughs> it's gone through several names, several acronyms, lots and lots of acronyms. And they were introduced to this meeting and they went, and in some places it was kind of a smaller conference, but in other places, and at the height of their popularity, they were packing large, large arenas, um, you know, tens of thousands of people would show up to these, to these week-long conferences. And the teachings in them were given by a man named Bill Gothard. They focused on resolving personal conflicts with people through a biblical worldview and also personal conflicts within yourself regarding, you know, personal failures or moral conundrums or self-acceptance, those sorts of things. The meeting was a week long, every evening for, you know, three hours or so. If they were not given live by Mr. Gothard himself, by that point in time was not frequent. Um, they were most often, you know, a person at the front with a, the big jumbo screens and a one of those old fashioned overhead projectors. <laughs> and they had slide operators that would, you know, keep changing the slides. And then the video, they had video playback of Mr. Gothard giving this pre-recorded conference. And then someone would be controlling the slide machine. So that was kind of the format. And my parents had been introduced to this I suppose a couple people that they went to church with and they really, really connected with a lot of what he had to say. There was never anything that wasn't presented alongside scripture. And there are a lot of things that were very appealing in terms of, I think in an answer to this idea of worldliness, you know, Christians being set apart and standing for this idea that, you know, we, we are called to something greater and we're, ministers of God's gospel. And these are the things we need to do in our personal life to, to set ourselves apart from the world. And, and these are the ways that you can conquer personal demons or personal failures. And so it was, it was really appealing to them. So how did you personally start to get involved with this? It was not recommended that young kids attend I think the age was 11 or 12 that they recommended kids start attending the basic seminar. And then there was also a subsequent seminar that you could take called the advanced seminar, which I'd done as well. So I, I, in my early life, when they first began getting involved, it was just something so at the peripheral of my life that, I mean, they came home with these red binders and many people actually went to these basic seminars more than once a year. They'd go once or twice or three times a year. If you paid already the first time you bought your materials, you didn't really need to pay again to go. You just need to register your spot. So people often went and we had a motorhome. We had this 40 foot motorhome that we often drove around on the East coast with. And so we would go out to, you know, Amish country where they were having one, or we'd take the motorhome out to Philadelphia, and which seems bizarre now because it's only 90 minutes away. But <laughs> And, and, you know, we'd camp out somewhere and then go to these conferences and, but I would usually stay with a sitter or, you know, someone came with us to stay with. So at the beginning, it was just this thing. And then slowly, you know, I remember going to the first meeting and taking notes and it all felt so important. And I think it was easy to kind of poke a little fun and see a lot of the people there were just like us, you know, but then there were people who you could tell were super involved and they wore very long skirts and 
wore their hair a certain way and had very high necklines and they just looked different. And I think slowly it started to seep in that there was a, for people who were very involved with this, there was a, they were really setting themselves aside and it was a little more, I didn't know the word legalistic back then, but it was definitely different than how we lived our lives. So it was easy to poke fun of that sometimes, or, you know, kind of call it out for being different, especially as a, as a preteen and early teenager. But then also I found the idea of their call to action for young people of doing something meaningful and good with your life while you're young, not wasting your young years on frivolity and getting involved in making a difference in the world. They promised that a lot. You will make a difference. We will make a difference in the world. And that was very appealing to me. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, it's, it sounds wonderful. I mean, that sounds like something, you know, you as a, as a young person and uh, also a family member, a parent or grandparent would say, Hey, this sounds something great for our younger kids in our family to get involved with. Yeah, for sure. And I think too, as the middle of three children, I don't know that I suffer too much from middle child syndrome, but I did definitely feel a, a real um, desire to be something, to be important, to be not special, but certainly for me to matter in ways that were big, you know, not just small, but big. I wanted to, to be impactful. So that was a really appealing promise. Oh yeah. You wanted to make a mark. Like you oh, wanted of course. To make yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You had this involvement with the church. You'd been very active in it. It had been part of your life. Uh, but you, you felt that you personally had something you needed to do that was important and big. And mm-hmm. of course that tied into your faith, of course. Yeah. Right? Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I was a very moody, introspective <laughs> teenager and I'd seen people kind of rebel in big, big ways or defiance and those sorts of things. And I had a pretty great relationship with my parents. I didn't embarrass easily. I didn't feel those maybe more typical teenage feelings of, gosh, mom and dad are such a drag, or I just want to do my own thing. I liked being around my family. I don't know. We, we just, we all got along and it was fine. So my parents didn't have many problems with me in that regard or with rebelliousness and things, but my problems as a teenager were more unseen by my parents because I was, you know, I had a lot of depression. I had a lot of anxiety, struggled with eating disorders for a little bit. And a lot of that just stemmed from anxiety. And those are the things that my parents didn't really see. And I remember being 15 and there was a point in time where all of my friends, I just kind of all of a sudden wasn't friends with them anymore. I was angry at everybody. And I just spent so much time thinking about the world and the brokenness of it and everything felt so it was a very ecclesiastical year for me. Um, I listened to a lot of Tiger Lily by Natalie Merchant. But it was this all, you know, the idea that you could, you were promised an opportunity to make a difference and be something beyond what other kids my age may have been, might've been involved in, you know, was, was really, wow, that was something, that was something I really wanted. I didn't want to be wrapped up in, not that there's anything wrong with this, but I think you understand, I don't want to be wrapped up in boys or prom or the school play or whatever. I wanted to be wrapped up in the issues of the world, you know? Definitely. That's a, I mean, you're at your age and then also to sort of 
you had this little bit of depression you were dealing with an anxiety and it's almost like you want to channel that energy that was going towards that to something where you could make a difference and make an yeah impact. i think so i think so so how did as you got older how did you get more involved in this organization i was super interested in art and design and I had been from a young age. I came from a family of artists. My mom and her sister and her mother were all artists. And I had always connected with that really deeply. I knew I wanted to pursue that as a career in some form or another. So these conferences became a catalyst for us to become more involved. And sometime in the mid to late 80s, IBLP had introduced a homeschool curriculum that was available to, at first, an exclusive few families, and then branched out from there to be available to anyone who was interested. And at that point, my parents, who had started homeschooling us two or three years prior, um, became really interested because of the values that they'd already seen with with these uh, basic seminars. And because also it presented itself as a sort of one-stop shopping for homeschool curriculum. There was one central book that you used. And I think my mom feeling overwhelmed with homeschooling five children and three of them at least having special needs in education. That was like a godsend, you know, oh my gosh, all this complicated. I have to get this book or that book or shop around for this. This is all one and done curriculum. So that was super appealing for her as well. So at that point we made the decision to enroll in the Advanced Training Institute, which we knew as ATI, the Advanced Training Institute of America, and then later became the Advanced Training Institute International or abbreviated as ATI. And that was when I was 11. Actually, we joined in 1990. We first applied for it and we were denied <laughs> that. Yeah. And uh, yeah, we were denied the first time I tried to apply. You know why? And I, They never said why. The application process is really kind of long and... <laughs> some very strange questions on it, which should have been maybe a first tip off, but, you know, things like, do you have a television in your home? How many hours a week do you spend watching this television? Does the mother work outside of the home? If so, how many hours? What does she do? Do you have facial hair? Do you, you know, there were all these questions. And the best guess that my parents had was that we had a television at the time. And my father had been, he'd been married and divorced and remarried to my mother. And so that was their guess. That's why they were rejected, but they were encouraged to reapply the following year. Um, I know with the registration also, with the, the initial application, you had to send in a family portrait mm-hmm. of all of them. So it came with a picture of the family. And so from those things too, they could kind of see how you were dressed or you know those sorts of things, little tip-offs that may have been it. So they never gave us an exact reason, but we were denied the first year. We applied the second year and were accepted. And that was in 1990. And then in 1991 was the first time I went to the national homeschool, the ATI. They have a national annual meeting as well for all the families enrolled in ATI. So your first time then, and that you had to travel to this place. Was it not near New Jersey? It was in Knoxville, Tennessee every year. They hosted at the university of Tennessee and it was not a small thing. I mean, and it was, I mean, I'm being honest, it was fun. I, we would pile into the motor home. You know, we'd take this long drive down to Tennessee. I remember every year we would make a stop in Virginia at a place called White's Truck Stop. And 
I don't know why we were so excited to always stop at White's truck stop, but that was sort of a halfway marker also in our minds. <laughs> but as an adult, I drove by this place once and I was like, oh my gosh, why <laughs> were we eating at that place? And why were we excited about it? That's the real question. Four-star dining? I mean, a solid half star, I'd say. <laughs> you loved it. You loved it. It was a special. We loved it. And it was, I mean, even coming from New Jersey, Dinerland, this, these were the biggest, fluffiest pancakes and waffles you can imagine. I think also after being cooped up in a, you know, seven of us on top of each other in a motorhome for 10 hours, 12 hours, you were like, okay, we can stop here and eat breakfast. But it was always, my dad always made it fun too. You know, we'd leave at night. And so I have memories of the sun kind of setting. The motorhome is literally parked on the street in front of our house, warming up, the engine warming up. And you can hear that loud engine as we're loading the last of the things into the car and the arguments over, you're not bringing seven stuffed animals. You can bring two. And, you know, those sorts of things. Um, you're getting comfy with your, I've got my blanket. I've got my earphones. I've got, and for some reason too, we always had a travel movie. As we got a little older, it was Spaceballs. Really? <laughs> oh, Spaceballs. Yeah. <laughs> we, that was in, I even recall a time we got about three miles up the road and someone said, we don't have Spaceballs. And we turned around and went back for it for the VHS team of Spaceballs. Good old dad. <laughs> that was like our takeoff, you know, um, movie. And we would, that was, we'd all be comfy in our seats and, get on the road as, as the sun was completely setting. And my dad preferred to travel all night so that we were sleeping and he could just focus on the road and things and, you know, bathroom stops and things like that. So, and you'd see other families on their way there too. You'd see the signs in the windows, Knoxville or bust or ATI bound and that, that sort of thing. And we always stayed every year at a campground just outside of Knoxville proper. There's a whole chain of Jellystone national park yogi bear themed campgrounds <laughs> there are oh my goodness are you aware i mean james have you two stayed at one come on, come on. i think i live under a rock or something I, have, <laughs> I mean I, I was a big fan of yogi bear but i didn't know about that really yeah they're literally called jellystone park and it's all yogi and boo-boo bear themed but this particular one was owned by a family that had moved from wisconsin down there and bought this campground and ran it. So it was a real family run operation. I mean, all their three kids worked there and they, um, their kids were about our age. We ended up becoming very close friends with them. We're still friends with them to this day. It was just fun to go to Knoxville every year. It was something we looked forward to, maybe not the conference necessarily and wearing all the stiff collars and long skirts and the blistering heat, but being there and seeing our friends is kind of, a little like going to summer camp, you know, it was a little, it was a yearly tradition. So. So you went down there for your first gathering and mm -hmm. you, you, you kind of got to experience it. What happened from there? Did, was this a, a homeschooling plan that then you would come back home and then there'd be a curriculum and then you would get together as a whole group every once in a while? How did that work? Yes, there was no co-op or anything like that. Um, there were family coordinators that were responsible for each state. So you kind of, in New Jersey, we knew the other New Jersey ATI families. There weren't very many of us. Okay. Um, if you compared it to say some Southern states where, you know, in Texas, where there are 300 ATI families or something, New Jersey had about eight, Okay. Um, maybe as many as 12 while we were enrolled. 
and they didn't live super close to us. We didn't go to church with them. So we didn't see them really during the year, save for there was some quarterly conferences that were more regional that we went to and we would see the same families, but we weren't really close with any of them. So really Knoxville was the big one, but the idea being that you took home your curriculum and it became the central part of your education. The wisdom book was the, was the one book that they offered as their curriculum. And it was about a 20 page leaflet almost um, that had a section for history, for science, for language, for Bible. So they, they had this and you were meant to go through it every year. You, I think you got five when you enrolled for the year because you had to re-enroll every year and pay a fee, which I learned, by the way, was not, I would have guessed it was maybe a couple hundred, but I spoke to my parents about this and they said it was a couple of thousand dollars a year. So it wasn't insubstantial. And there were scholarship programs that you could do if you needed financial aid of some sort. But when you enrolled, you got these five wisdom booklets and they sold it on the premise that it was not meant to be supplemented with anything else. It was except the Bible. This and the Bible were your entire education. So we used it as the main part of our education. And day to day, our our life outside of the wisdom book, though, wasn't didn't involve meetup groups or anything like that. Um, we did belong to a Somerset County homeschoolers group, but we were the only ATI family in it. They were other just homeschool families in the area. Got it. Um, so really, it was... That's what we did day to day. We used these books. Um, We did end up, I mean, most people, I think, supplemented with curriculum that's used frequently in Christian schools and things like that. And then you would go to these sort of uh, once or twice a year, they would have the regional meetings. Ours was always in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And then we'd go to Knoxville, you know, in the summer. But those things never felt that they were part of homeschooling so much as they were part of it was more of the same with a basic and advanced seminar. You know what I mean? With a lot of people coming on stage saying how these teachings had impacted their lives or um, they had apprenticeship classes and programs for, they called us apprentices, all the teenagers and young unmarried people with apprentices. And there was a big focus on, you know, we had separate sessions that were all about guarding your heart and, you know, personal morality and, being again, the promise of making a difference in the world and those sorts of things. And we were also, I think the pinnacle of all of this was the 10,000 voice choir, they called it, which was all of us apprentices took up a huge section of the, of the arena that we were in. And it was just a sea of blue and white because we all wore white tops or blouse, like shirts or blouses and, and Navy skirts or pants. And we, you know, sang for the grownups essentially. And, uh, there was always a hymn we sang every year it was it will be worth it all. I don't know if you're familiar with that hymn. I'm not, but I can imagine all those voices in unison. Yeah. Did you practice a lot? We had choir practice every day, oh. but I mean, with 10,000 voices, there aren't one or two that are standing out necessarily. So I don't I mean, know how. That must have been incredible sound. You, you know, it was. And I, I remember being in that choir a lot and tearing up, you know, it, it felt so monumental. It wasn't being part of a big thing, as I mentioned, was always appealing to me. And here I was, you know, here, here was. Yeah, it was big. So I understand from a conversation we had before that you 
began to get into a leadership role. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, a little bit. I, I was sort of on the fence about being homeschooled, being an ATI at the time, I was 15. And I think I was reaching a crux of some sort where I was either going to just fully rebel maybe, or I was going to go all in on something. I just didn't know what it was yet, but I could feel that. Yeah, I could feel that happening. I was just like at the precipice, or maybe that was just 15 year old me, you know, but at the time, central to ATI's curriculum were these apprenticeship programs. They were really really set on and convincing you that you don't need college. Your kids don't need college. College is just going to indoctrinate your children for the world. So instead we offer these apprenticeship programs. The idea being that you were trained in a, in a trade, you know, and you could pay money to, to send your kids to these classes. Some of them were three weeks. Some of them were six months. Some of them were two years. They had just introduced, we'd learned about it through our, our conference at Knoxville that they just introduced a new program in the apprenticeship lineup, which was desktop publishing and design. And I had always been interested in the arts. I knew I wanted to do something with art. My parents knew this as well. And coming from a, a line of artists, you know, my mother, her mother, my mom's only sister, they were all artists. And my parents really wanted me to do this class. It was in Indianapolis, which was their main training center that they had. And it was a three week course in basic desktop publishing and design. And my sister at the time, who was very involved with music and wanted to be a music teacher, they also had a similar class on music theory, the basics of music theory and um, choral arrangement and those sorts of things. It was called Sound Foundations. And um, it was happening during the same three-week period at the same place. My parents signed me up for it. They signed her up for it. And I remember thinking at the time, like, oh, I don't want to go to this. I don't want to go to this place. I don't want to wear skirts and pretend I'm more goody two shoes than I am for three weeks. I had a lot of anxiety about going, but turns out once again, I love being parts of things that are bigger than myself. <laughs> I love right. being part of the gang and feeling like I'm doing something important. My first visit to the Indianapolis training center known as the ITC it turned out to be really great. I didn't know it at the time, but it's sort of conference season there. During the summer, they have lots and lots of classes that often go on at once. The training center was a an old hotel, a 13-story hotel that had been gifted to um, IBLP by the city of Indianapolis. And they had converted this hotel into something that suited their needs um, and their decor template, <laughs> which involved a lot of red carpeting, by the way, <laughs> there were just red carpets everywhere. Every single facility you walked into red carpets and mirrors. Anyway, um, that was their design aesthetic, though. I got there and here's all these young people, not just sort of the hardcore lifers you might think of as like the very moral uppity, super hardcore ATI people, maybe the more legalistic people that you might think about. It was also kids like me that their families were in ATI, but they still wore jeans and they still watched movies and they still kind of lived a more or less normal, quote unquote, normal life. And it was like summer camp for me, meeting all these people and being in that space. I also loved the independence of it. Um, I think the part of me that always wanted to go to a boarding school and always wanted to spend the summer at summer camp, loved that I had a key to my room and I had roommates and I, you know, for three weeks I was living in this space of um, a little bit of independence, you know, and doing my own thing. 
And I, I loved the class and stuff. And at that point, after the three weeks, and a lot of anxiety, social anxiety, but like loving it at the same time, I told my parents, I came back and I said, I want to go back there. And they were a little shocked. Yeah. Um, but all that energy that I had spent, you know, four or five years really that had been building up in me of looking for something to do with myself and somewhere to, to pour, to direct my angst and my, you know, <laughs> desire to help people and be part of something. It kind of at that moment just pivoted and all channeled right into that. And I, I felt like this is my opportunity. So my parents were surprised, a little worried, but pleased. And, you know, we worked it out and we figured out, okay, you can go and work there on staff on a trial basis for 30 days. So I came back in August from desktop publishing. And after several weeks or months, they'd approved me to come and work as a volunteer for 30 days. And so I had a plane ticket to fly back to Indianapolis. It was the end of October in 1996. That was kind of my start of being there in a staff capacity. I remember my dad putting me on the plane, and this was obviously before 9-11, and he walked me to the gate because you could do that back then. That seems insane. You could, yes. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm even checking my, I know it happened, but in my brain, I'm like, that didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> but he walked me to the gate and waited with me for my flight and then walked up to the, the ticketing clerk and, or the gate clerk, you know, wink, wink, smile, smile. My little girl's first time on an airplane all by herself. I'm just so worried about her. I want to make sure she's taken care of. Can you, is there any seat in first class available that you could put her in? She giggled and let me see what I can do. And so I, I took my first flight to Indianapolis in first class. <laughs> you wrote first class. I guess it was just a sign of things to come. The greatness that was to come. I don't know. It was, uh, you know, it was a short flight, but I remember getting on that flight and laughing at my dad. That's, that's just who he was. He was always a, a schmoozer to some degree. And so it felt appropriate that me parting off in the world. I felt like at the time I was only 16, but I felt like, oh, this is it. I'm moving away from home. <laughs> I didn't know I'd be back so much after that, but you know, first I was moving class. by first class, which felt yeah. pretty good. Felt pretty good. Um, so yeah, I, that's when I first went to the training center and, and worked there in a staff capacity and found it, found out very quickly that it was very different from when I had first been there. And there was that just huge influx of teenagers and young people coming in for all the classes. I mean, I think when I was there for desktop publishing, there must have been 600 people there oh. at that point in time uh, for, for multiple classes that were going on at the same time. And um, when I went back, it was trimmed down to just, just staff. Maybe you'd have a random class come through or something, but it was maybe, you know, 80 people. And the rules were much more stringent because I was observed far more closely and all these things that I just hadn't realized. So there were several hiccups in the beginning of trying to adjust. To, I, I so desperately wanted to be what they wanted me to be so that I could just fit in and get the work done, you know, and not realizing all the places where I was going to have all these missteps of, of things that I would not have even considered. Things like, well, you know, we noticed you were sitting next to this table where this other young man sits frequently for meals and you did it four times and 
is there a problem here? Are you, are you interacting with this young man? And that sort of thing. And I'd be like, what? I don't even know who this guy is. <laughs> or, you know, I had been pegged early on as a possible threat, like a problem. And uh, that was very anxiety inducing to me because I thought, gosh, I came here because I wanted, I want to do the thing, you know, and I, I need to, I need to figure out how to, how to be what they need me to be so that I can do the thing. And, um, I fell into a routine. I was on the housekeeping staff, you know, essentially anytime they had guests come in that stayed for conferences or anything else, there are people who needed to prep the rooms, kind of like a hotel maid essentially. And I, um, within, uh, in a short period, really, really learned the ropes. I went home for the holidays and was itching to go back. And my parents said, listen, you need to finish high school. <laughs> you haven't finished high school. They said, take the GED, which at the time through New Jersey, you could get a, a high school diploma via GED if you logged X number of hours in an adult high school, which is what I ended up doing. I spent three months every day, eight hours a day or six hours a day going to this adult high school, studying and, and logging time and took my GED. And I had not even gotten the results back from my GED before I was driving out to Indianapolis again, which is at that point, they'd begun transitioning me into leading the housekeeping crew. So I became in charge of the housekeeping crew within a pretty short period of time. You know, you just kept switching roles from there. I felt such a strong pull there, not just because I felt as though I was part of something bigger than myself and I was doing something important, but also I'd made so many close friendships. I mean, being able to, it must be a teenager's dream to just be able to live with your friends, right? I mean, um, you want to spend all your time with them, with your peers, you're figuring out who you are. And for the first time in my life also, these were friends that I had made based on a personal connection versus just on proximity to one another. You know, I'd had really good friends that I grew up with and they're really good friends, but sometimes too, you don't necessarily choose one another, right? You're just, they're there and you're there. So why not? But so that felt really special as well. And I was very wrapped up in, in some really important relationships to me. So it felt really good to be there. And I was kind of on a high about it. And I was doing at that point, they switched me from housekeeping to it was kind of my a little bit of a, a small dream to get on the decorating team, because the hotel was still not completely renovated. The training center existed beyond just to be a training location for apprentices in the Advanced Training Institute. Part of what they wanted us to be trained in was leadership. And this particular training center in Indianapolis was working with the city to create essentially a, a program for young people that had come that were coming through the juvenile court system in Indianapolis, um, where they had an option essentially for a lot of these kids were coming through for reasons of truancy or, you know, small crimes, or, you know, they were just, they were getting in trouble a lot and things like that. And repeat offenders were ending up in a point where they had to choose between going to boys and girls school, you know, sort of essentially a juvenile detention center or to this place. So those parents who chose to send their kids to this place instead, their kids would come there. And we were being trained as leaders for these young people. Some of them were as young as 12. Others were as old as 17. And they had a school learning center there for them so that they could log their state hours for satisfy that requirement. And otherwise, they lived in a suite with their two leaders. It was usually two leaders to one, what we call leader in training or LIT. 
And that was a large part of what was going on there, as well as a branch off of that, which was some of us apprentices were actually working with, we had a school that <laughs> we'd started more or less in the city in a neighborhood called Fountain Square, now made famous by um, your former guest, what is her name on Good Bones? Karen Lane. Karen, yeah, yep. yes. Yes, they live in Fountain Square. Fountain Square has been made famous, I feel like, by that show. And that's where I used to go to teach school in Indianapolis. We had a small school set up that we used a church in the area, a Baptist church that allowed us to use the building during the week. And we had about a dozen and a half students that came uh, and their parents, they, they were parents from the area that didn't have the option to homeschool their kids and maybe their kids were having a lot of trouble in school and things like that. And they would enroll their kids here. And then we would teach usually on a one-to-one basis. So all of that was going on as well. And it just felt, it felt really fruitful. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So Monica, it sounds like things were going pretty well. You were very engaged in something important. Uh, You're helping kids in the, in the area in Indianapolis and you had made some really good friends. So how long did that continue? And did that begin to change at any point? It continued for a while off and on, but there were these underlying issues that kept coming up. Um, Certainly the issues of my own inferiority, never being able to really meet the mark that I was being asked to meet and not in kind of subtle ways, actually, it was sort of, I felt many times that I was being watched, I felt I had been marked as someone to watch. And I didn't know how to change that it felt as though I needed to change fundamentally who I was. So that was concerning, but I wasn't mature enough to, to really understand or unpack that until years later. Um, that laid under the uh, surface for a long time. And then there was an incident that that really changed things for me, again, in ways that I I wouldn't fully understand for many, many years. There was a young woman that that I lived there and worked with that I was very, very close with. We worked on the same team together on the decorating team and, you know, doing essentially renovations to the hotel. And um, she was like my left arm, you know, (laughs) and we were attached at the hip and um, I felt very understood by her and I, I never really felt understood by a friend ever in my life. So that was really huge. And she had a lot of trouble that was happening that I didn't know about. Um, and it was actually following the Knoxville conference that year, we'd gone down in buses from the training center to Knoxville, Tennessee, which also felt very important, by the way, to be on the other side of the Knoxville conference, not as a student, but as a staff member uh, felt yeah. like, whoa, yeah. I am, I am in. And by the way, they had like a whole staffer's tent set up that was continuously uh, stocked with Krispy Kreme and coffee. Oh, the best. I, I just felt like I had access to some pretty good stuff, you know? And um, so that was cool too. But immediately upon the return of that, she was gone. And I was, I was devastated to come back and find that she was not there. And for reasons that no one would share with me, but you just got the overarching feeling there was the implication that it was bad and that happened more than once at the training center, but never did never happened with someone with whom I was so close. It was really devastating. And I, I didn't know how to navigate it, but I remember getting sick immediately after that. Looking back now, it might've been from anxiety 
And I just remember some things clicking with me. And there were several circumstances that I slowly began to understand as people in leadership were trying to use me as a source of information. I learned some things and many things did not sit well with me, but I didn't know, I didn't, I didn't have the wherewithal to digest them or figure them out or understand what was happening. I just knew that I, I still was at a place where I wanted to fit in and please leadership so that I could, again, do the thing. I wanted to be doing the things. And I felt really badly about it. But in, in hindsight, I know that to a degree, I was, I don't know how to word this gracefully. At the time, I, I felt that I was being used as a tool to get other people in trouble or corroborate stories and circumstances that would get people in trouble. And I didn't know for years how to really process that or understand that the feelings I had were of manipulation. But I knew that that was a turning point for me in remaining unsettled. Also of thinking I found it, I found the key. I, um, I played ball and I was I was given a spot, if that makes sense. Right. And at the time, there was a, an opportunity coming up for one of their biggest classes that they offered, the apprenticeship program, was something called EQUIP, another acronym. It was meant to teach you to counsel in the way that, into the standard that IBLP had developed that aligned with their worldview. It was eight weeks of intense, intense classes you were put into teams of, you know, six to eight women with women, men with men. We, we changed rooms. We lived with one another. During those eight weeks, you weren't allowed to talk to anyone else other than people on your team. Uh, we memorized scripture around the clock. I, I don't even know how many scripture verses I memorized. I just remember that was like the equipped life. You woke up at five in the morning and you studied, studied, studied. You had all your little index cards with all the scriptures for that week that you're memorizing. And and so it was eight weeks of classes. And then the finale of that was nine months of service at the training center where you would serve as a leader of a leader in training in the training center, or you would go out every day as a school teacher for um, the school that we had at the church in, in Fountain Square. And that was called ITI, which was Indianapolis Training Institute. I felt like I actually have tried to think about this many times and why my response was this instead of my, instead of my response being to just leave, to flee, it was to, it was to dive in deeper, which is really interesting to me. Oh uh, yeah. I was going to ask you because it sounded to me like you were, you were kind of disappointed and you were starting to get a little worrying about what your role had been. And then you kind of said, you're going to go, would you say play ball? You were going to do something. even. <laughs> yeah. so I wasn't sure whether you meant you were going to play ball by like leaving or you were going to play ball by actually diving in deeper, but you're saying you dove in a little. I dove in deeper. Yeah. I, and I don't, I don't know why, maybe because I had, um, I'd been waiting for that opportunity for so long to be noticed as someone other than, Oh, she's just here and we have to keep our eye on her versus this is someone we can value and we can, we can utilize. And I don't even mean in a using manipulative way. I mean, in a, we can utilize this person. I, that's how I felt in the moment that I had earned my stripes. Right, so, so I, I dove in deeper. <laughs> I joined the uh, fifth class. We were equipped five. There were about 48 of us, I believe. And we had four students from Russia. So that was kind of cool. 
And which, by the way, since that point in time, I've had a lifelong obsession with Russian. I've tried to learn it a couple of times. I, I, we had a, a woman on our team who was Russian. She was about 15 years old. Um, and it, it was awesome. I just bug her for all the words in Russian, you know, it was really neat. But I dove in deeper. And one thing I'm really grateful for are the friendships I made afterward in the absence of this close friend who left very suddenly. I met people who um, were sort of hiding in the shadows of this place where we all had to kind of make sure we were keeping the rules just right and, and you know, that sort of thing. But people who would meet me and see me in those kind of dark places and not think about the letter of the law so much. And I'm grateful for those friendships because they really did get me through what ended up being a really hard year, very challenging year. Got it. Because you were... You're diving deeply, but you were still a little upset over your mm -hmm. friend. And, and, and trying to make sense of it. And, sure. you know, yeah. You ultimately left the organization. I did. And, and, and what brought you from that diving deeply into leaving? Well, so <laughs> the story, I graduated from Equip in, I think it was, I think it was May of 1998. So at this point, I'd been there, I'd been there almost two years with little breaks here or there. And I'd only been home twice, I think, maybe three times. So this was my life now. For all of its hiccups, for all of the anxiety it was causing me, it was it was my life and it was what I sort of fostered to a degree on my own, you know, under heavy suggestion, but <laughs> I I'd fostered this life on my own. And I wanted to stay, but my parents, I actually had to clarify some of this with my parents because I didn't remember. I, I remembered that I really was heartbroken for leaving, but I, I actually asked my mom, I said, why did I leave then? If I didn't want to leave, why did I leave? And she said, we really wanted you to come home. And she told me that they were a little nervous for me. At this point, my father had had concerns about indoctrination they'd noticed a change in me, which was impossible to avoid. I'd been living in this bubble for nearly two years yeah. as a very impressionable teenager and as a people pleaser by, by my nature. And I think they just had concerns. They saw part of their very outgoing, independent daughter kind of not slipping away, but changing and there were concerns over some indoctrination with maybe some of the principles and, and things that they didn't agree with. And they felt it would just be better for me to, to spend some time at home. And so they'd, they'd sort of told me, you're coming home. Maybe you can go back again later. This is not forever, but for now you're coming home. So it was with a lot of heartache that I left. Um, there were many, many tearful goodbyes. And um, many of the people that I, I had been there with stayed on for a couple more years. I know I went back at least once to visit. Um, and my student that I had taught through, you know, I was her school teacher, and I'd become very, very close with her. And she was an important person in my life. I kept in touch with her and I, I went back to visit her um, also. So that was that was nice as well. Were you ever able to get in touch with that close friend who left suddenly? I did actually. Um, 
So it was a surprise. I'd sort of mourned the loss of her friendship. There'd been instructions that she was not to have any contact from anyone at the training center, which just made it that much more heartbreaking. And I want to say it was three or four years later that I just randomly got an email from her. I mean, I just remember opening up that email and crying. Um, my heart just stopped when I saw it come into my inbox. I was able to see her the following year. She had moved to Tennessee, which had always been a dream of hers. So when we went down to Knoxville, you know, I was able to connect with her and things like that. And um, so it's just, it's been wonderful to watch her kids grow up and things. And it's been really special. Terrific. I'm so She's glad about that. Very special person in my life. So your parents saw some changes in you. You said you, you had had some moments yourself where you were thinking about you know, what was happening and about how it was impacting you. And, and the decision was made that you were to come home. Were you okay eventually with that decision to come home? Yeah. You know, I didn't spend very much time mourning all of this because I, <laughs> it seems funny to think about now, 25 years later, how, actually how quickly I transitioned. It didn't feel quick in the moment. I came home in May or, or, or June. And I remember feeling a lot of angst that probably recent college grads feel where you finished this thing. Now what? <laughs> um, yeah. I was doing this thing and I was really busy and I was really involved and now, now what? And I, I had a lot of uh, anxiety over it. And I remember sitting at my parents' house every day, the facts that I was just getting up the first week was a vacation. That was nice. Yep. Getting up at my leisure, eating whatever I wanted, whenever I wanted, wearing whatever I wanted. Those things were a little bit of a vacation. But then by week two, you know, I had been so accustomed to the regimented schedule. And I was always told where to be, when to be there, what to wear, that sort of thing. So it was so strange and dare I say, really boring. And I felt, I remember feeling bored, but also boredom was almost the wrong word for it because I just remember feeling anxiety that I was losing time, that I should be doing something with myself. This is lost opportunities and lost time. And I just remember sitting at my parents' dining room table, you know, drinking a cup of coffee and having the local newspaper open, looking for jobs, you know, like, what can I do with myself? What am I equipped to do with myself? If I'm not in that world, in that world, you can climb the ranks and be someone. But out here, I don't have, I have a GED. I have no college degree. I, I mean, I was 18 at the time. My friends from home, I'd sort of not lost touch with, but we'd, we just spent two years apart. They'd moved on. I'd moved on. It was, we weren't very close anymore, you know? And they were all graduating high school and getting ready to go to college. They had their next thing. And I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do with myself. So I just remember looking at, you know, receptionist jobs and things like that, trying to find something to do. And it wasn't much after that, that the congressional campaign that my family had volunteered on two years prior in 1996, he was running for, he'd won and he was running, running for reelection and they were looking for an office manager and their office was a mile from my house. So it felt super ideal. And our family had become close with their campaign because my mom in her homeschool, in all her homeschool glory decided that what a fun and educational family project to volunteer on this campaign. And Hey, their campaign office is just a mile up the road. This is perfect. Cool. And it, 
you know, yeah, it was very cool. We stuffed envelopes and that was a whole other thing of feeling involved and part of something, you know, I, I kind of got an interest in politics at the age of 16 doing that. And, um, and then here I was, it was like a dream. They were like, Hey, yeah, the Navarro family, they have their daughter is looking for a job. She's got a lot of experience with sort of scheduling and reception work that I'd gained while working at the training center. And, and so they hired me and that felt like a dream come true. So very quickly, I was able to transition out of that heartache and into something new that gave me purpose and felt important and big. So it's <laughs> yeah. feeding my little addiction there. <laughs> yeah, definitely. You were making an impact yeah. for something that was very important and you yeah. had developed some discipline skills where yeah. you had some working skills and you had made some good friends. But let me ask you this question, Monica. How did your experience out in Indianapolis uh, impact who you are today? Um, in so many ways. It's in some ways really simple, in other ways really complicated. I feel like it was a real boredom buster for one in terms of teaching me from a pretty young and impressionable age that there's always something to do and there are always um, ways to, to be productive and, and useful. And I think that that's a really good skill that I gained from there early on. I think also learning a degree of independence. We were in this bubble and we were scheduled, but there was a degree of personal responsibility. We were expected to be so much more mature than our age, which had both its benefits and its drawbacks. I expected far too much of myself and I was really hard on myself after that. But I also was pretty self-sufficient in a lot of ways. If I can say, I mean, now I look back and I think, God, I knew nothing. But I felt pretty self-important at the time that at 18, I could get a job and be an office manager. And I, I had all these skills already that I'd sort of developed that. So I felt a little bit ahead of the curve in some ways and then terribly behind the curve in others, you know, just I only had a GED. I didn't have a high school diploma. I wasn't going to college. So that, you know, I hadn't had a proper classroom experience and things. But in terms of, of real personal things, I will say throwing an individual, a motivated individual who is already pretty hard on themselves in general and is a yes person, they're a people pleaser, into an environment where you are constantly being molded into this idea of put yourself last. First Jesus, then others, then you. That's the way you should live your life. And that's the only way to true joy. It's the, um, the self-deprecating part of me was waiting for that to be, you know, my mom used to call me her little martyr when I was a child because I was always just uh, throw the sackcloth and ashes on me. I'm a horrible person, <laughs> like, you know? And so I think that environment in many ways was just compounding some really unhealthy thought patterns and, and even encouraging them. Um, and there was no way for them to necessarily know that about me. That was the formula and we stuck to it. And uh, it wasn't tailored per individual. We were encouraged to kind of all be this one unit. That impacted me in negative ways for a really, really long time. And um, 10 years later, I really started unpacking that and kind of trying to understand why I respond to situations the way I do, why I allow toxic relationships and things like that in my life, not just romantic relationships, but work relationships and, and those sorts of things. I guess what you're, what you're saying, if I understand it right, while 
we understand the importance of who Jesus is, right? But I think what you're saying is that for somebody who was, you know, you had a lot of anxiety, you wanted to make sure you were pleasing people all the time to be sort of put into a, a role where you got your last, your last, your last, your last, mm-hmm. your last to everything that was harmful to you. Yeah. I think it's interesting that when someone has this sort of, let's say a condition, let's say they're addicted to alcohol and then they're in a situation where someone doesn't know, but they just keep pouring them a glass of alcohol, you know, and you know, it's just right there. And I was too young to understand that that was even a thing that my personality and the way I thought of myself was even um, a bad thing or, or that. So then you had someone saying, Oh, actually, that's a good thing and keep going with it. And um, I mean, there were authority structures that were so central to their teachings that, you know, maybe in the right hands could be really, really positive. In my brain, they created a situation and you know, for me in future relationships with work, with, with romantic relationships, with friendships, um, even with strangers, I will be honest, this idea that your authority is always right and that you should give them everything or that you should put everyone before your needs, before your wants, before your family, before everything, you're serving them endlessly. And that created a lot of really, really sometimes long lasting negative impacts and relationships in my life that were in my early 20s, those were those were some really challenging uh, circumstances to get through and to work through and to get out of then. And I feel like the experience that I've had since then has given me all the tools to undo any of the negative from before, if that makes sense. I'm so grateful for the friendships that I've made for the church communities that I've had um, that began showing me that there, there's an otherness about God that I had never understood or known before, despite being a lifelong Christian. And that was such a gift. I mean, that's how I know you guys. That was the first time I'd seen people not hiding away their sin or their differences. And I didn't even know how much that was happening in the church I was growing up in and not intentionally, just in a way that, Oh, we don't talk about this. Okay. We won't talk about this. And here we were going to small groups and people were like, we're going to talk about this. We're going to, we're going to love anyway. And we're not going to judge. And that was, that was completely, I mean, otherworldly to me being in this new space where all of a sudden no one was hiding the ugly bits made me realize how long I'd spent in a place of perhaps unintentionally, everyone was almost at a competition to be the most godly. Or maybe the competition with yourself, you always had to be more godly than you were the day before. If you weren't continuously striving for that, then what what were you doing? And it was an environment that was not only driven by by leadership there, but also by you had, let's say 150 young people, mostly teenagers, thrown into a space the first time they'd been away from home, many of them from far more legalistic and um, sheltered places than I'd been raised in. You had a Pentecostal (laughs) and a room and roommates with a a woman who wouldn't lend her her scissors because she wanted to trim her bangs. And that was sinful, you know, people arguing over which version of the Bible is the most godly. And so you had all these different theologies 
and worldviews really mixing into this one space. And before you knew it, you were, am I being godly enough? supposed to strive to be as godly as we can, but I don't read my Bible near as much as this woman does. Or, you know, I, I read a Christian novel, but that's not as good as reading the Bible, you know, and you don't realize the ways in which you're just competing with yourself at that point. You know, you're competing with everyone else, but you're also just trying to constantly be more godly. But coming out of that and being in an environment where now there was no competition, it was just here I am, this is where I am. I want to love God and I want to live a godly life, but that might look way different for me (laughs) than it does for you right now. And there was just so much grace, grace that I'd never experienced prior to that. Um, So by contrast today, I feel like over the last, I mean, I'm by no means at on the pinnacle of the mountain. I've arrived. (laughs) I mean, I mean, in some ways, I've reg- I feel like I've regressed so much, but I have so much more grace with myself and with my failures and successes. My ability to navigate relationships of all kinds has improved so greatly. So what are you up to today? The pandemic has actually introduced an opportunity to be a stay-at-home mom uh, with my two children. I have a five-year-old and a two-and-a-half-year-old. I'm an independent contractor. And I get to travel all over the place, well, pre-pandemic anyway, um, working with just some incredibly creative people as we, we create these um, environments for corporations to solve big problems in. And that all sounds like a bunch of corporate speak, but it's so much fun and it's so rewarding. And I love my job. One of the most important relationships in, in I feel like my, I don't want to say healing, but one of the most important relationships in, in this journey of the last 15 years following my time at the training center is for 20 years, I guess now has been my husband. I have never had a person speak more encouragement or believe in me more or accept my complete honest self more. (laughs) It's just, it is such a gift to not, um, furthermore, just even every year that passes, I shed more and more of that sort of shield that I've had over me, you know, trying to hide the ugly bits. And um, so some people these days don't see as affable, agreeable and lovable a Monica, but they see the real me. And that's the friendships now that we've developed here in Baltimore have been really, really special. We have a community here where we all care for one another and we all sit with one another in sorrow and in joy. And it's just, it's really, really amazing. Um, I'm grateful. And I can't say that I I wish, sometimes I wish there were some things that hadn't happened, but also they, they are so central to who I am and part of my life experience that you can't, you can't take them away. Right. You're right. It's part of who you are. Yeah. Monica, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Thank you guys so much. I'm so, I'm seriously so honored. We will see you soon. Thanks, Monica. Have a great day. So, for all of our listeners, keep discovering and telling stories that inspire you and others. Have a great day. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Your History, Your Story. Please subscribe, share, and check out our website at yourhistoryyourstory.com for episode notes and bonus content. We'd love to hear from you if you have any questions, comments, or a story to tell. Be well and God bless.